Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study leadership and strategy in data science, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you're having a wonderful week, and I hope that you, all your family, friends, and loved ones are staying healthy and well through this pandemic. Today, we'll be speaking with Ken Ewens Clark. Ken is a bioinformatics hacker, super impressive guy. He is a self-taught software engineer who started working in bioinformatics in the 90s, in the late 90s, taught himself the whole way through and has recently been working as a senior scientific programmer at the University of Arizona. He's also the author of a book called Tiny Python Projects. It's available through Manning. We'll put a link to the book on the show notes. And also we have a discount code for all our listeners that want to get the book. It's for 40% off and the code is poddatafuturology19. So pod, like P-O-D, like podcast, poddatafuturology19, one nine at the end. And you can get 40% off the book. Ken is uh, obviously an author, a teacher, programmer, and a bioinformatician. His background, his journey is super interesting. I really enjoy the conversation. I hope you do too. Here is the discussion with Ken Ewens-Clark. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Ken. Ken, how are you doing? Thanks so much for being on the show. I'm doing really well, uh, especially given the circumstances. But uh, yes, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, thanks for making the time. And yes, this is an absolute crazy time. I'll start by asking you, you know, the topical question about COVID-19 and what are your thoughts on what's happening with COVID at the moment? I'm not sure I'm a good person to answer that question. I actually, interestingly enough, I work in bioinformatics and especially interested in any applications having to do with human health, especially diagnosing disease. My group that I work with, specifically we work in what's called metagenomics. So given an unknown population of microbes, how can we identify who's there and what are they doing? So really quite applicable to wow. what's going on in this situation. But unfortunately, there's nothing I can do directly to help anyone. I contacted the Arizona Department of Health because I have a couple contacts there and I said, hey, if there's anything that you can be doing that I could be doing to yes. help you, especially with regard to handling sequence data and processing it and maybe using like HPC resources, high performance computing resources, mm. you know, I have experience with those things and I'd love to be doing that. But I think that we're not really still using sequencing technologies widespread to diagnose disease. I'm yeah. not sure exactly what the COVID-19 tests kits, how they work, but specifically I work in a field where we sequence everything and then we just take those sequences and try to figure out who they belong to. I would be interested wow. if we could get to sequencing-based tests sooner rather than later, but I have no idea what the timeline would, on that would be. Yeah, that sounds really interesting, though. How did you get into that field? A completely random series of mistakes and not knowing what I'm doing. My story is that I getting out of high school, graduated high school in 1990, and I was a, a pretty good drummer and really didn't know what else to do with my life. I had a, a lot of friends who were going to music school, and I thought, mm, maybe I'll go to music school. Maybe I'll become a professional musician. So I went to the University of North Texas, really just top-notch percussion department there, and I, I learned a lot. But one of the first things that I learned was that 
that I didn't really want to become a musician. And wow. so I changed my major a couple of times, ended up just getting an English degree, continued studying music and got a minor in that. Always studied various instruments throughout college, but decided I wasn't going to go pro with that. So after college, I had my English degree and really no specific skills to do anything in particular. So I got a job just working in an office, answering the phones. This was back when we had fax machines for our orders. And oddly enough, that first company made synthetic DNA and peptides for Michael, uh, for molecular research. Yeah, I know. I had no idea what this field was. I'd never heard of this. And this was in 1995. I graduated and I started working for this company and I absolutely hated it. I had never liked biology. It was a miserable job just doing customer service. But this was 1995. And so this was the beginning really of the internet. And uh, the company, somebody had registered a domain and we needed a website. So I learned, this was on Windows 3.1. I learned how to use Notepad to wow. manually write every single HTML page for our website. And I worked with an artist to get some custom graphics and I created a website and I used Putty and FTP clients to send those files Amazing. over. So I learned how to make a, a website. My parents growing up, they ran an advertising agency. So anything in the company that had to do with mm. the print materials, the catalogs, the advertising, that interested me. So I took mm. over that. I learned how to use some desktop publishing software to make the new company's logo, I mean, a uh, new forms for the customers and to, to make our new catalog. Well, that catalog needed to be mailed out. Customer addresses were in three or four different locations. So I learned how to use Microsoft Access to merge all those addresses and names and deduplicate them so that I could only send one catalog to each customer. So I learned the basics of databases. I still hadn't learned any programming language at this point, but I was just very, very much on the cusp of, of being able to figure that out. I worked at that job for a year. My wife wanted to go to graduate school in Cincinnati, so we moved there. I interviewed and interviewed, and I was trying to find something having to do with computers, but at that point, I still had virtually no experience, and I certainly didn't know how to program at all. So I somehow managed to get hired by a guy who wanted a piece of technical documentation written for some software that he had written. As it turned out, he was also an English lit major who had also studied music and who had taught wow. himself how to, how to do programming. His name was Eric Thorson. When he hired me, it was just the two of us. He was the boss and I was his one and only worker. So we were a two-man company for a long while. And uh, he hired me. And then after I wrote a manual, basically, for his mm. software, and I just showed a lot of interest, uh, he said, well, would you like to learn the programming language to support this program? And I'll just keep you on. And so that program was written in Visual Basic. Uh, and nice. I said, absolutely, I would love to learn that. So he gave me a big, thick binder. And I just sat there at the desk for a couple of weeks. And he paid me to sit there and learn Visual Basic. After a couple of months of learning and, and looking over his shoulder and getting some uh, tutorship from him, I was competent enough to write some basic programs. We sold some third-party contact relations management software, CRM software, nice. and then we would write custom extensions for our clients. And so he, within a few months, he was able to actually start billing me out. And so I became a consultant. And it was just a very upward, very quick trajectory from there. I was just fell in love with programming. I was like, Finally, I figured out something that's interesting that I truly enjoy doing. I'm helping people and bonus, I can actually make money doing this. So, yeah. you know, within like a couple of years, I was able to like double my salary from a barely just above minimum wage kind of a situation to, hey, I'm doing all right and I'm still in my 20s. So I was pretty excited about this. I worked for Eric for about a year and a half and then I went out. We eventually moved from Visual Basic to Delphi. Then I went and got a job doing Delphi and I started learning more databases 
databases. I started off with like DBase4 Clipper databases and then moved more into relational databases, a Sybase, MSSQL, Interbase. This was around 1998. And after a couple of years of doing Microsoft desktop-based programming, I decided I hated it. I really didn't like kind of what I was doing and this whole internet thing. So we're talking about 1998 or so. I was like, yeah. man, the internet is where it's going to be. I need to be moving that in that direction. So I got a job with another company doing uh, ASP, Microsoft's uh-huh. uh, active server pages with uh, backed up with MSSQL and all running on IAS, Internet Information Server. And that got me, that got my foot in the door with internet programming and kind of understanding how it worked. But again, I just like hated the technologies. I was very unhappy with working in those technologies. And it was around that time that I realized that my ISP, this is in Cincinnati, they maintained a shell account for you could have shell access to your account. I learned how to use Telnet. So I would Telnet over, and uh, I shouldn't be saying this, but during the workday when I was bored to tears writing ASP, <laughs> I'd actually shell over to my ISP and I started learning how to use the Unix command line, which awesome. I had fortunately been introduced to in my undergraduate days at UNT because that was how we checked our mail. I would have to mm-hmm. walk over to the computer science lab, sit down at a terminal, and I would use the command line to use Pine. Pine is not Elm, right? So I would use Pine to read my email back in those days. So I had a general idea of how to type commands and stuff. And so I just started like buying books and reading things online and then quickly discovered Perl. So again, this is 1998. Python wasn't really a player. The only other languages really to use it uh, on Unix at the time would have been like C. And I had friends who I know who went and wrote the CGI scripts in C and Bash, but wow. I went the normal route for the day and I wrote in Perl. And that led to a job at Boston.com when we moved to Boston, which was the internet site for the Boston Globe, which technically is owned wow. by the New York Times. So I started working for the New York Times digital company. That was just fantastic. I was uh, finally in a, a LAMP environment. So mm-hmm. Linux, Apache, MySQL, Perl was my full development stack. And I was in hog heaven. And I knew that I had found my home. And so I haven't touched a Windows computer, except you know for minor support for other people. But I went entirely Unix. This was around 1999, 2000. So I've been pretty happy about that. Worked on that for a couple of years. So in 2001, I got got hired by guy named Lincoln Stein, Dr. Lincoln Stein. If you've never heard of him, you should totally look him up. This is 2001. So he was one of the biggest authors and writers of modules in the Perl language at the time. He co-wrote the Mod Perl book. So Mod Perl is a way of embedding a persistent Perl process inside the Apache process. So you would not incur startup penalty for running a Perl script inside Apache. It could just basically be once it runs, it resides in memory. Mm-hmm. So it made Perl run much, much faster. And so Lincoln had written that book and he was on the Mod Pro list. And I was on the Mod Pro list because I was using and writing in Mod Pro. And I saw that he had in his um, signature, it said, I'm always hiring programmers and postdocs. And I had no idea what a postdoc meant, but I knew that I was a programmer. And if this guy was hiring programmers and he was one of the uh-huh. baddest programmers around, I wanted to work for him. So I wrote him, I sent him my resume. As it happens, my boss at boston.com had been a technical reviewer for one of his books that he had published with O'Reilly. So I was able to get a really glowing 
recommendation from my previous boss to Lincoln. But I told Lincoln, he, Lincoln at the time was working at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories, which is in uh, on Long Island in New York. I told Lincoln, I said, uh, I'm moving from Boston and I'm moving back to the Texas area. That's where my wife and I want to be. So I'd love to work for you, but would you consider hiring me remote? He had never had any remote workers. And this was really well before telecommuting was, was this very This is in popular. like 2001? But 2001, yeah. Wow. And I said, would you consider hiring me? And he said, well, you know, let's give it a shot. I'll hire you as a contractor for three months and we'll see how it goes. So obviously I busted my tail in those first three months. Yeah. Yeah. to show him some good work. And I was like, please, please, please hire me full time because I really need healthcare insurance. And so he did. And so I was his first remote worker and I worked remotely for Cold Spring Harbor for 13 years from 2001 until 2014. Lincoln was an amazing, incredible boss. He was not only one of the baddest Perl programmers I'd ever come across, he was also an MD, PhD in like human pathology. Wow. And he had basically taught himself and was kind of one of the early inventors of this field we call bioinformatics. So he was like a trained physician and researcher who was also a self-taught hacker, mostly in Perl, but not limited to that, and had gone off and started creating this field of bioinformatics, which included, for instance, the ability to look at a genome graphically, what we in the bioinformatics field called a genome browser. And uh, there are still genome browsers like the UCSC, University of Santa Cruz, University of California, Santa Cruz. That's one of the most popular genome browsers, especially for human genome. That was created by Dr. Jim Kent, who's also a close collaborator with, uh, with uh, Lincoln. Lincoln created his own version called GBrowse, the generic genome browser, which was distributed as this piece of software. It was all written in Perl that people could install on their own servers and look at their own genomes of whatever was interest to them. Lincoln hired me and he said, okay, cool. What I want you to do is create something like a genome genome browser, but instead of looking at just one tiny section of one genome, I want to be able to see whole genomes next to each other, like whole chromosomes. And instead of looking at it horizontally, I want to look at it vertically. And I want you to draw all these lines in between them where there's things that are similar. And I was like, what's a head explosion? Yeah, what's a a chromosome? What's a genome? What are you talking about? Because again, going back, I hated biology. I really blame my 11th grade biology teacher because man, I did not like her class. And I actually dropped it. And so uh, like since that day, I was like, oh no, I hate biology. And so Lincoln hired me, even though I didn't know anything about biology. And he just slowly taught me like, okay, here's what a chromosome is. Here's what a marker is. Here's what a gene. Here's what a QTL. Basically, I want you to draw like a line and then a bunch of things on it and then some lines across. And I was like, okay, I can do that. There was no high level graphic software. So I had to use like at the time. So I was creating for the internet. Everything that he was writing was for the internet. This was an internet-based application. So it needed to create an image. I created a GIF. I used LiveGD to actually say, okay, allocate a box this big this many pixels, and then draw inside of it a box. Now draw on top of that another box. Now draw on top of that a box and lines and text. And I had to manually lay out every single thing. That thing was called CMAP, Comparative Map Viewer. And that was just, it felt impossible. When he described what he wanted, I was like, I can't do this. I'm going to fail. But he actually gave me like years to work on this. I never had that in academia. I mean, I'm sorry, in 
industry. And, and I moved yeah. basically to academia where timelines are generally much longer. I had no product. I had no client waiting for this. I had no advertisers oh. waiting on this. It was just like, I want you to write this software. And if it takes you six months, that's okay. I have time. So I was like, wow. Well, this is great. I can deal with this. So I worked really, really hard. And that's one of my first papers. You can look that up on Google Scholar. Look for CMAP, UNS-Clark. That was fun. It was challenging working for Lincoln because he's a bona fide genius. And mm. anything that he asked me to do, he could have done in half the time and twice as good. But he had the patience to wait for me to, to catch up. So he worked at Cold Spring Harbor until around 2007, I think. And then he got recruited by the Ontario Institute of Cancer Research. And he was able to move to there where I think he was able to have a budget where he could manage like 30 people instead of a dozen. So it was a big move up for him. And then I continued working at Cold Spring Harbor for Dr. Doreen Ware. She was my always my direct supervisor there. And we worked on, I mostly worked on something called the Gramine Project, G-R-A-M-E-N-E.org. And it was comparative plant genomics. So my first 13 years in what, what I would, in what we call bioinformatics was working on comparative plant genomics. So mostly plants that have uh, agronomically important to us as humans, things that we eat like rice and wheat, but also other more basal organisms like mosses and stuff. And, and so it's comparative genomics. So like if you know that, for instance, there's a variety of rice that grows in Indonesia, it has a gene called, I love this gene, it's called snorkel. So as you flood a field, the plant will just keep growing taller so that it can reach oxygen and light. Huh. And no matter how high the water gets, the plant just keeps growing. So they call that snorkel because it just That's... keeps growing up. It's really cool. So, and it's like, the question is, what can we draw from genes and plants and traits that we know about? And how could we maybe incorporate those into species that maybe perhaps produce more yield, but have these other, like they lack drought tolerance or they lack uh -huh. arsenic tolerance. So that was what we were working on in, in plant genomics. One of my co-workers, Bonnie Hurwitz, she joined the team in 2004 at Cold Spring Harbor, and she was also working remotely from Wisconsin at the time. And she and I worked on Grameen together for about four years. And then she decided that she wanted to go back and do her PhD so that she could become what we call a PI, the principal investigator of a project. And so she left, and I was so sad to see her leave, and she came to the University of Arizona to do her PhD. And at the time, I jokingly said, yeah, well, I'll miss you, but maybe when you set up your lab, you give me a call and I'll come work for you. Four years later, she finished her PhD and they immediately snapped her up. They were like, we don't want you to leave the University of Arizona. We want you to stay here as faculty. So she didn't even do what's called a postdoc. Uh, oh. So she just went straight into a, a faculty position and she needed her first uh, hire. I was ready to move on from 13 years on that same project. It had been a great run. But so one of the things I would, I would back up and say personally about that time, that period of time working remotely for 13 years, during that time, my wife and I produced three children. Amazing. I was able to be at home with her through all of her pregnancies, yes. through all of the getting the kids through diapers and through getting them all the way into school. So it was amazing for me personally, not only to be professionally developing in this field of bioinformatics, and that was a lot of fun. But personally, I was able to, to watch my children grow up. And so by the time they were all kind of going to school and my wife decided to take a job, I was left at home alone all day. Mm, and at the time yeah. we were living in like rural New Mexico. So I was like half a mile down a terrible dirt road and I didn't have any neighbors around me. I got kind of lonely. So Bonnie, uh, Dr. Hurwitz came along and said, you know, I was in New Mexico and she's in Tucson, Arizona, which is like mm -hmm. nine hours apart. 
She's like, why don't you come down to Tucson and consider working for me? So I, we came down and we looked at it and we said, yeah, we could make a new start here. So that was in 2014. So it was about six years ago. We moved the whole family to Tucson. My children started middle school and elementary school here. And nice. I started at the University of Arizona. And actually, up until that point, I had been working, I would say, really around bioinformatics. I had mostly mm -hmm. been in charge of making databases, but mostly I was still a web developer. I was still primarily creating software that ran on the internet that allowed people to connect to biologically relevant data. But I wasn't ever really doing data analysis, mm -hmm. actually taking like fresh genomes off the sequencer and then trying to figure out what's going on there. So that was really my entree into actual data analysis was not really until I got here to the university and then moving here. So I, then I had to all of a sudden learn high performance computing and I had to learn a lot more about actual sequence data and the applications of these. And one of the main reasons why I took the job here at university was because I knew I would have an opportunity to pursue my master's degree. So having been in this field for so long, but only with a Bachelor of Arts in English Lit, I always felt, I mean, you want to talk about imposter syndrome. Mm. I basically had that for 20 years because, you know, I got into computer science without a computer science degree. Then I got into biological science without a biology degree. And so I was like, here's my opportunity to backfill a lot of knowledge that I've heard people talk about statistical, like something that is or is not statistically significant. What does that mean? You know, I'd never had a statistics class. So during my master's, I was able to take statistics. I was able to take some basic science courses that really kind of helped me understand like DNA transcription. Like I'd heard of these things. What is a microRNA? Mm, I kind of know now. And then, you know, I also got essentially the department with my own boss as my advisor. They let me basically formulate my own degree plan. So I basically created a bioinformatics degree for myself. The name of my degree is biosystems engineering, but really I just kind of cobbled together like some programming, some statistics, and some science, and I uh, got my master's degree. I finished that last year. I will say that I had a little hiccup in the middle about three years ago. I had a uh, really terrible bicycle accident. It was just me in the ground, and it was no one else's fault. It was completely my fault. I was riding recklessly on some trails, on some mountain bike trails, but uh, that took me out of commission for about a year. It took me six sure. months oh. really before I, before I could really even work again, and then I couldn't go back to school for a full year, but I was able to overcome that, and I felt pretty good. So I finished my master's degree last year, and along the way, another reason... There's so many reasons why I wanted to work at the university with Bonnie. She and I have been great friends since since 2004, so going on 15, 16 years. We have tremendous respect for each other. And I knew that she would be teaching. And uh, she teaches like bioinformatics, basically, which is a mix of biology and computer science. And I knew that I would be part of that. It was one of those things where at the beginning of my career, I was kind of playing around with computers. And I said, you know, I don't know where I could go with this, but I feel like that's my future. It's something to do with computers. And in the last few years, I've been feeling a big, big draw towards education and teaching. And the opportunity to help Bonnie teach these classes, I was like, I just feel really strongly that this is a place where I need to be going. And so over the years, we would split up the courses where she was teaching primarily the biology and I was teaching like how to use the Unix command line, how to write basic Perl scripts. And then we moved from Perl to teaching Python. And I was creating novel materials, mostly because uh, I just 
wanted to. I enjoy creating these materials. And then at the end of last year, after teaching, I actually kind of basically had the opportunity to teach the entire semester just an introduction to programming with Python. And at the end of it, I said, you know what, I think that I've got something kind of different here. And I decided to try to put it together as a book. And I approached a couple publishers. Manning took me up on it. And that has led to the Tiny Python Projects book and material that I've been working on. And the crux of that, it has grown organically out of the way that I've taught my students over the, the last, say, four years or so. But it really became apparent to me that teaching using tests really works well. So instead of just telling students, I want you to write a program that does this, I first give them tests that define what it means for a program to be working. And I say, you will write a program mm. that satisfies these tests. And so they run it and it says, oh, I gave you, for instance, the numbers two and three, and I expected your program to give me five and it didn't. Here's what it got gave me instead. And so I feel like it gives them immediate feedback that mm. I don't have to be there specifically for. It's not perfect, but it's better than not teaching with tests. And so my thing that I'm trying to do now moving forward is to improve the, the state of, of, of the education of the way that we teach programming. And I think it's I'm in a unique position because I just did my master's degree here. And what I saw and what I have seen throughout science in academia is that no one teaches programming. It's not a requirement to get a computer science degree in order to do yeah. bioinformatics. You just generally kind of figure it out along the way. Uh -huh. And then people pick up one language, like R. R is a very, uh -huh. very popular language because so many people are doing heavy statistical analysis. And then some people learn Python if maybe they're doing more systems level stuff. One of our students actually got a double major in computer science and biology. And wow. he's clearly very, very well set for a career in bioinformatics. But that is by far the exception than the rule. Most people are biologists who somewhere along the way pick up some programming. Sure. I'm kind of the exception with a, being more of a computer science interested kind of background person who then has to come and learn the biology. But most of us are in that situation where we really know one domain and not both. So what I see is that no one teaches how to write a program ever. And they certainly don't teach you how to debug it. They don't teach you anything about systematically finding or documenting or making your program flexible or distributing it, making sure it's reproducible. We have a crisis in bioinformatics and in science in general, I think, with reproducibility. And it really comes down to the fact that people are usually writing programs explicitly for themselves. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, I have to publish this as part of my paper. Here's this program that barely worked for me. Good luck you getting it to work on your system. <laughs> That is, I don't even know how long I've been talking, maybe for 30 minutes straight, sorry, but that's how I got where yeah. I am, I, I think generally, and that's what I'm trying to do at the moment. I love it. I have heaps of questions, lots of questions, but I was wondering about how the book came to fruition and, and the structure of it, uh, especially because it's obviously very project-based, very outcomes, and every every project seems to be designed for people to acquire very specific skills. And bringing the testing lens, I think, is a fantastic addition. So how's it going, putting together the materials, the structure of the book, and the writing process? 
So I have, since I was nine, studied music. And I've studied at this point, you know, a dozen different instruments. And I play several of them very poorly. But, you know, I'm an, I'm an enthusiastic musician, right? So it was three or four years ago, I decided, hey, I'm going to take up the violin. I'd always heard of the Suzuki method. Well, I got to study the Suzuki method. I've actually shelved the violin for a little bit. And I think my family's really happy about it because I was just never really very good. And it's quite a loud instrument. But the Suzuki method is a perfect, I think, analogy to what I'm trying to do with my material. So uh -huh. uh, Dr. Suzuki starts you off with Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. So you get to play that on, on usually like a couple of strings. You, you learn a couple of positions with a couple of your fingers. And then you also learn rhythms. You learn how to play mm -hmm. that same melody, but with different rhythms. And then you start building up simple melodies. You start introducing more fingers, more strings. And then you eventually you move out of the little toy songs that he has written. And you start playing French folk song, you know, like these very traditional folk songs. And then eventually, you know, by the end of the first book, you get to play a couple pieces by Bach. And wow. they're like legitimate pieces of music. That's the same idea. And again, this came out of teaching my own classes and teaching my own students. So how simply can I start a program? And they're not truly simple. I mean, the very first program in the book, if you've never seen any programming language whatsoever, you would probably still be pretty lost. But if you have been playing around with Python or maybe JavaScript or some other language, some C-structured language, you're probably going to be able to come to that first exercise, the first chapter in the book. It says, Here's how to write hello world. Okay, now here's how to write hello something. Like we can pass in the argument, the, the thing that we're going to say hello to. Now here's how we would test that program to say, well, if I say hello universe, does it say hello universe? Does it repeat that back? And then so in the first chapter, I'm just trying to convince you that if we adopt kind of this mentality that the thing that should change about the program should be passed in as an argument, then we can test our program. We can pass in a different argument and automatically test it. Because what I see over and over again, especially in science, especially with novice programmers, is that everything about the program is hard-coded. And a lot of times you have to search all the way through all the mm -hmm. source code to find all the different places that it's hard-coded. And you're like, no, these should all be passed in as parameters, as arguments mm -hmm. to the program. And that's how we make this program reproducible for other people. Like, you're not going to write a path to the input file that sits in your home directory on your laptop and yeah. have that be buried a thousand lines into the program. That is an input, and it comes into the very first function, which should be called main. And this is the way any other Python programmer anywhere would expect to see this program structured. So here's how to write a program in Python. But I would actually love to write this, this same book in a couple other languages. Oh, yeah? But here's nice. How, yeah. I've already started on uh, tiny Elm projects and tiny nice. Rust projects. Elm for teaching functional programming, which has mm -hmm. single-handedly changed my view of programming. And then Rust is actually my favorite systems programming language right now. I love the compiler. I love the strict, statically typed nature of the language. It's something that I actually am very frustrated by Python. Yes. There's so many errors that I have to teach my students to avoid or how to debug mm -hmm. that are non-issues in Rust. But I think that I could not have gotten them this far along in the semester. Like I think we're what on like a week eight or nine of the semester. I'm not sure that I could get them to write programs as flexible as they're writing right now if I'd mm -hmm. started with Rust. But maybe as like after they took my intro to Python, if they took my intro to Rust, they would actually get mm. there pretty quickly. Yeah. Anyway, so going back, so I'm, the way that I structured this is like, okay, I teach you how to write Hello World. Then I teach you how to write a program that takes exactly one string argument from the command line and do something with it. Then the next one is how do you take 
more than one or more things from the command line. So I've just moved from working with a string to a list of strings. Mm -hmm. What can we do with a list? The third chapter is introduces a dictionary. Here's what a dictionary is. Here's why it's good. Here's an application where we would use a dictionary. And then I just kind of go from there introducing the basic data structures in Python. And then I start trying to combine them. Here's how you read from a file. Here's how you write to a file. Oh, by the way, have you ever heard of standard in and standard out and standard error? We can also learn about these other file handles along the way. Here's how to write a program that reads either from an input file or from the command line. And so we start combining these in different ways. And then the tiny Python project is meant to be completely generic. These are just general ideas that you could apply in any domain. For my students, I then take those ideas and I show them a biologically relevant application. So for instance, just last week, we did the chapter called Apples and Bananas, which Uh is based on the children's song, I like to eat, 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 eeples and bananas. I like to oat, 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 opals and bonobos, right? So you'd replace the vowel sound with one vowel Mm. sound. And so Mm. given a string, how would you replace all the vowels in that string with some other vowel? And it's clearly a trivial application. I mean, that's not, you would think, oh, that's not something I would ever do. But the exercise does teach you about how to mutate strings in Python because strings in Python are immutable. So how do you go about making new strings from other strings? Well, that actually has a direct implication in biology. When you're transcribing DNA to RNA, all the T's in the DNA get turned into U's. So I teach my students how to read an input file of DNA and then produce an output file of RNA. And so I'm combining like both systems level programming, like how do I batch process 5,000 input files and put the outputs into an output directory. I'm also teaching them how do you mutate strings along the way. So it's really a very short leap from these trivial Uh games and puzzles that I give you to how you can apply those in a real world situation. And, And some of the reviews that I've seen we're like, well, these are trivial. So like, why don't you talk about how to apply these in a more real world? So I've created in the GitHub repository, and I think I call it extra directory, where I'm just taking those exercises that I'm creating from my class and I'm putting them in there along with a readme that says, okay, here's how we can apply this idea from this chapter to something in bioinformatics. And then as I come across other ideas, I'll, I'll probably add those, you know, maybe not having to do directly with bioinformatics. So anyway, so the very, very long answer to your question is I, I this is how it seems for me to go well in teaching students. Like I have this progression from what I think are are fairly simple concepts and then combining those in different ways and then keep introducing like another couple concepts through each chapter. And then by the end, I mean, really the last chapter in the book is not easy. My, my, my publisher said, Manning said, we only ever try to take someone up maybe three or four notches. So if they were a two, by the end of the book, we're going to try to get them to be a five. Wow. We can't really take someone from a two to a 10, right? <laughs> it, it's just too much material to cover. Yeah. So that's what I've tried to do. I actually wrote 40 exercises for the book, which was way too much. And I was trying to get someone from a one to a 10 and it was going to be too much material. And so I just chopped it in half. I mean, I just took the first 20. I actually had like, I think 22 chapters or 23. So that's the book. It ends with tic-tac-toe. You might think, I mean, you know, tic-tac-toe is pretty simple. Uh, You know, why isn't that chapter three? Actually, there's a lot of stuff to talk about along the way. I'm really teaching a lot, not 
only about the language, but also about testing, about documentation, teaching about like higher order functions. Many of the programs, I show several ways to solve the problem. Like so for apples and bananas, actually, I think I have nine solutions now that introduce you to all these different string methods there are, but then also introduce you to some higher order functions like map and list comprehensions. And then actually at the last one I introduce is regular expressions. And not a single one of my students had ever heard of a regular expression. And, it, you know, why should they? None of them are computer science majors. And most of them have never seen the command line before this, this mm. semester. So I'm saying, okay, here's what a regular expression is. And here is how, if you learn this other little mini language, you can apply it in pretty much every other programming language that exists and on all these tools on the Unix command line. So again, I'm just like babbling, but, but, but I hope this that... is fantastic. I love the passion, the dedication, how well thought out every step is and how it's been already road tested with students. This is not just stuff that I pulled out last year. Yeah. I've been really trying to hone these exercises over a few years. And I'm actually teaching the material right now this semester. And then, of course, everything went to pot two weeks ago, right? Before, you know, yeah. We went on spring break and we, we couldn't come back from spring break because of COVID-19. And so the order from the administration was everyone move all your classes online completely. Luckily, Dr. Hurwitz and I were in a very good position to do that. And one of the first things I needed to do was become a YouTuber. So yeah. I bought this fancy headset that you see That's that good. I have and I started recording all my lectures and I'm uploading mm. them to YouTube. Christ. So my username there is KY Clark. And so I'm just putting all my lectures up for free that accompany the book. And of course, all the materials are for free in my GitHub repo. Uh, GitHub. I'm, I'm also KY Clark on, on GitHub. And so you can find the Tiny Python projects. And so I guess I'm hoping that anyone who's stuck at home right now can uh, watch my lectures and go through the materials and teach themselves Python at home for free. That's fantastic. That is amazing. And I love how your journey shows what dedication, hard work, being interested, and showing enthusiasm throughout the whole way, what that can lead to, like what a difference in mm. life that makes. Yeah, because essentially, like you were self-taught the majority of your journey on, on all these different fields, obviously in computer science and web programming and bioinformatics. It's amazing. I wanted to ask you at the beginning when you were getting into computer science and you were frustrated with the technologies that you were using, but you saw the potential and the power of programming. How did that duality work that you were frustrated with the state that things were at at the time, but could still see the potential? Like what kept you going through that period? It's a good question because I think back you know, I have a smartphone now and I think back, like, how did I ever visit a new city and find my hotel before yeah. I had a smartphone? I just don't remember, right? Let alone I must have, learn, like, I must, like web programming, I must have, database programming. I, I mean, but I think back to that, I mean, like, I must have, did I print out maps and then, like, rent a car and, like, just find my way around a city? So I try to think back. So I started off in Visual Basic and I was like, yeah. okay, this is pretty cool. And then I learned Delphi. That seemed pretty cool, but just, I don't know. There was something about just that the internet was out there. The internet wasn't mm. huge yet. I was like, here I am writing software for this desktop that can only be seen on this machine on which it's installed and will only ever be used by the people who buy this commercial piece of software for this company that I'm working for. And then there's the internet where thousands, millions of people can see the product without having to you know, download and install and it's like there's this huge chasm between these two mm, models mm. and I don't want to be stuck in this container in this this desktop container mm. I want to figure out a way how to get out into that much bigger world but I didn't know how I was going to get there and so I like got a job like I said with the doing ASP
PSP, and I was right back into writing Visual Basic, right? Yeah. VB Script. So I was writing VB Script inside of HTML, which is essentially like PHP, right? And I was like, okay, this is the way the internet runs. I don't know this. I was still very, very new to it. But I just happened. I'm not even sure why. Maybe I was just bored, and I was just like, what other programming languages exist? But somehow I figured out that there was this thing called Perl, and I could mm. run it on Unix, whatever that was. It's like, oh. Yeah. Wait, Unix, I have heard of that, and I do know I have a shell account. I don't know why my ISP gave me a shell account. I mean, I don't think my ISPs do that anymore. I'm in Tucson, and I don't know of any server that I can get on. And you know, the amazing thing, I would actually write them sometimes, and I would say, hey, I need this Perl module installed off CPAN, which is the Comprehensive <laughs> Perl Archive. And they would install it for me. And so they like let me write CGI scripts and run, you know, they just like, if you created a CGI bin directory in your home directory, bam, you got a CGI. You can write CGI scripts. I'm sorry. That's common gateway interface for people who aren't old enough to know the early days of the internet. And so that's support from your ISP. (laughs) I couldn't believe they would do that. They would do that for me. And so I don't know. And then once I started playing around with the command line, I was just hooked. And I think there was something about the language about it. So I could say that I kind of accidentally ended up with an English degree. But the truth is, I love language. I love word history. I love using words. I love writing. I love speaking and and teaching. And so there was something I think about through the command line. And also, it's just, I quickly saw the flexibility. So if, if for your listeners who aren't familiar with, for instance, pipes on the Unix command line, you can combine the output from one program and you can use a vertical pipe to make that the input to another program. So you can start chaining together five, six different commands and basically write a program on the command line directly without Mm -hmm. ever having to go into Perl or Python. And so there was something about that flexibility that is exactly like the, the any spoken language too, that I can take any combination of words and put them together. Now, obviously, they have to follow some grammatical rules for you to make sense of them, but there's nothing stopping me from trying to do this. And there was something just incredibly freeing about these programming paradigms that seemed so at odds with the Microsoft world at the time. And mm-hmm. Microsoft has really completely changed as a company in the last few mm-hmm. years, right? I mean, now they're like... I I actually been using VS Code to record my lectures and kind of grudgingly respect Microsoft now. But mm, there was a mm, good yeah. 10 or 15 years of my life where they were the beast incarnate. I mean, I yes, hated Microsoft and they yeah. were doing everything they could, you know, to put down Linux and to put down open source. And mm-hmm. I just hated them for that. But the open source world was just so open, right? It just was so inviting. There seemed to be so much opportunity, so much more so than in the desktop world and in the Microsoft vision of computing that I was just as quickly as I could get away from that Microsoft vision, I did. I hope that answers your question. Uh, uh, definitely. And I don't, I don't blame you at all. I definitely felt the, the same during that period. I love a point that you made earlier about not hard coding attributes in a piece of software and passing them as variables to the software. I mm-hmm. think in, in programming, that's pushed quite well. And I think that software engineering and computer science majors, they get taught that, that fact. But I wanted to ask you about how that applies onto database work and data processing. Because from what I've seen, a lot of SQL statements, people are still very happy to hard code a lot of the transformations there, even with case statements. And then as you grow essentially a data processing pipeline, 
we have the same problem as as we had in Python, say, where all the low-level transformations are stuck in line 1000 of a piece of or of a repository, SQL repository, in a query that has a case statement that hmm. says when you see this code, transform it to that. And one of the things that I've been working with my teens on, on how to make that approach data-driven, so then you can store the data separately and the logic of the transformation or the code in another part, and then have um, the code read in the data about the transformation that it should do. Have you come across anything like that on trying to pass in arguments to data processing? Yes. The short answer is yes. I think that maybe we have fundamentally different ways of going about it. If I'm yes. following you, like maybe are you using like stored procedures to... Yes. Uh, in, okay. So I haven't used stored procedures in probably since, well, probably 99 or 2000. There was a one project where I worked on where we had an actual dedicated professional DBA who was mm-hmm. in charge of all the schema design, who wrote the stored procedures, all that kind of logic that lived actually inside the database, right? And I remember writing stored procedures myself. And if I'm remembering correctly, and this was for Interbase at the time, which was a Delphi, which was a Borland product that I used with Delphi. And if I remember, I could parameterize those stored procedures. Yes. It's not a common practice from what I've seen, but if you've seen different approaches or different approaches that are in your world, in bioinformatics or, or in the work that you've done, I would love to hear about how you guys solved that problem. So I definitely haven't used stored procedures in decades. When I first started with Grameen, we were actually uh, forced to use the Oracle for our backend, which was disastrous for us. For one thing, we couldn't afford a professional Oracle DBA to keep it running. So oh. the performance was abysmal. And of course, Oracle can handle stored procedures and all this kind of crazy stuff for big databases. We didn't need that. We had relatively small databases. The reason why we got saddled by that was because the funding agency knew Lincoln and knew that he was apt to go mm. off and use this thing called ACEDB, which was this object relational model. It was like an object database that was written by this one guy in France. And they were afraid that we were going to, which he, he had done before. He had used ACDB for, I think, worm base, which was a for study of C. elegans, which is a, a nematode. It's a very small worm that people study for an invertebrate. And they didn't want him using ACDB. So they're like, you're going to use Oracle. And it sucked. It was terrible. Yeah. I was actually running MySQL on my own little home server. I swear at the time, this was a 486DX or something like that. And my little server running in the closet could literally beat the pants off Oracle <laughs> running on this big hardware that we had. Because we didn't, we couldn't afford the person to tune it. So we used that for five years and finally we got to switch over to MySQL. But essentially, I was probably the only one on the team who'd even heard of stored procedures. So any data processing happened for us and and still does for me in a language. So relational databases have been a core part of everything I've done from Mm. the beginning of this. And what I do is I query the database and usually that query will be parameterized clearly. I mean, nothing's going to be hard-coded there. And I'm, you know, I'm assuming that we're on the same page where, you know, it's going to be where value is greater than or equal to question mark. And you literally write the SQL with a bunch of question marks in it. And then you pass separately through your programming language, the parameters that then get substituted in correctly quoted and handled for that database. Because I bounce around between SQL Lite, PostgreSQL, and MySQL very regularly. Uh And so Uh I'm using high-level interfaces to interact. And uh, oh, I'm also using Mongo database as well a lot. And so for instance, I'm using all my web work uses, I always separate that into an API, usually 
are written mm-hmm. something like you know Node.js or Python, like Fast API, which is really fantastic. And then a front end, which I usually write in the Elm language. And so mm-hmm. all of that querying happens like in Python, and mm-hmm. all those queries are parameterized. But if I was, for instance, loading data into a database, all the processing of that happens really probably in a Python script, and then mm-hmm. passes in insert, update, delete statements to mutate the data in the database. But I never rely on store procedures. So yeah. does that answer your question? It does. It definitely does. It's a good approach. And does that also apply for the case where you need the data preparation and the data processing to be reproducible? Absolutely. I mean, so you can go onto GitHub under Hurwitz Lab is our lab directory and then under KY Clark and any code that you find in mine, there's almost always going to be a make file in that directory. And for your listeners who don't know about make, I'm abusing make to basically document how do I do this thing. So it'll be like make load. There might be a load target that says, here's how I run this Python script that I wrote with these parameters to load this database with this input file. And so that's how I document often really for myself, how did I load that data into that database? How do I query that database? Yes. So after you write the books on Python, on Elm, and on Rust, what do you think is going to be next? And is it going to be something bioinformatics mixing the two fields? Well, really, the next book that I'd like to write. So I have grand delusions of grandeur, for sure. If anyone will hire me, allow me to write this next book. The next book I want to write is actually specifically about scaling data. So coming at it from bioinformatics, but I think that that my experience is applicable to any field that's dealing with a lot of data. And I think the first thing is to teach basics of command line programming. I hesitate to call it Unix, but it really is Mm. the Unix world. If you're Mm -hmm. on a Windows computer, you can install Windows subsystem for Linux, and it's really quite capable. It's really quite good. And if you're on a a Mac, you've already got a version. I think it's a variant of FreeBSD is running. And then, of course, if you're running Linux or if you get on AWS, you're going to probably get an Ubuntu or a CentOS box or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think people should be taught the basics of command lines, piping, redirecting, those basic kinds of things. And then they should be taught make. I look around and see that the ideas of Make permeate so many workflow management systems that there are out there. Because there's Make Flow, there's Snake Make, there's Rake, there's lots of things like that rhyme with Make. But they're all basically like, hey, Make is really cool. Wouldn't it be cool if it did, could do these additional things? If you could just learn the idea of Make and how it creates what's called a DAG, a directed acyclic graph. So Uh this means like I start from here and it looks kind of like a flow chart if you write it out. Starting from this point, I go to this point, I go to this point, and this is how data flows through this diagram. What we so often need to do in data processing is move some input through a series of transformations to some output. Maybe that output is another file. Maybe it's loading it into a database, but we still have to, I mean, that's all computing is, is transforming one thing into another. So if you understand the ideas of make and can write a make file, then you can apply that. Well, first off, you could just simply use make in a lot of cases for a lot of workflows. But then you could take those ideas and scale them to whatever is the new hotness right now that is a workflow management system. I think that people need to understand the basics of parallel processing. So there is another tool, actually make is from the GNU project. Another GNU tool is called parallel. So if you have, like even on my laptop here, I think that I have four processors. And it's very common for the high-performance computing machine that I work on to have 68 to maybe 92 Uh processors. I can write a Python script that, for instance, I was just teaching today in my class. How do you write a Python script that that processes one or more input files and puts the output into some output directory? Okay, batch processing. 
101. If I write that such that it's also maybe calling some sort of external process like BLAST. BLAST is an application that we use in programming, I mean in bioinformatics, to align some input file to some known genome sequences. And if I were to run that sequentially using Python, it might take a week for the program mm-hmm. to finish. But if I could instead spawn that out to 50 of my processors and run, let them run in parallel, then I could find, finish it 50 times faster. So introducing people to the idea of parallel processing, you can do that even on your laptop, even with just mm-hmm. like two processors, you could learn the basics of parallel processing. And if you understand that, then you could quickly take that to an actual HPC, high-performance computing machine, where you're on a head node with a scheduler and you learn how to request 50 nodes, each of which may have 92 processors. And then you're really in the realm of scaling data up. And so learning like those building blocks from the command line through make, through some basic shell processing, basic shell scripting, learning some basic ideas about parallel processing, and then taking it into like, how do you write capable scripts in a language like Python, which is not my favorite. But then how can you use that as a stepping stone to parallel processing? And then how can you take those ideas and put them into containers like in Docker. So if you go to Docker Hub and you look for Hurwitz Lab, you can find a bunch of Docker containers that I've made that containerize popular tools that we use in bioinformatics. But I've also additionally written run scripts in there that will help those tools to run in batch mode. So a lot of times mm-hmm. these tools are written to process in exactly one file at a time, but that's mm-hmm. not realistic. In bioinformatics, I usually have a directory of hundreds of files that I need to process. So I've written, you know, like a wrapper script and I've put it into a Docker container so that anyone anywhere with Docker can pull down that container and run that in a batch mode on that. So how, but but the problem is I can't run Docker on an HPC because Docker takes root privileges. So we have to take Docker containers and put them into singularity containers, which is basically the same thing. But now I can run a singularity container on my HPC and use that in batch mode. So how can you take going from the smallest, simplest Unix commands and take all these ideas through workflow management and parallel processing, put them into containers and then run them on something like an HPC or possibly AWS or something else like that. I think that's where we need to be moving as far as making our code reproducible. For instance, there's still a lot of tools in bioinformatics that are Python 2, and Python 2 is end of life now. But the people who wrote those tools, they were probably graduate students, and they wrote those things five, six years ago, and they've moved Mm -hmm. on. And no one's going to support those tools, but they still need to run, and you still need Python 2. So it's probably best to just create a container for that tool that has that frozen image of what uh-huh. it needs and those dependencies, and then just use that in combination with other containers. I kind of, I think about this book as like something like scaling data. I think a lot of the ideas of what I've learned in bioinformatics apply to a lot of other fields. And I think that so. kind of a book would probably help people to move beyond just like hard coding things and just running, you know, thinking uh-huh. about how do I run this on my computer, getting away from the works for me mentality, right? How do we make this work for everyone? That would be amazing. Definitely one to keep on the list because I'd be I'd be very keen to read that book as well. Mm. Ken, thank you so much. I know that we went a little bit a little bit over, but I was loving the conversation, man. I'm so impressed with everything that you've done. Thank you for putting your knowledge and your passion into YouTube video series, into books, into GitHub. Can't wait for the rest of your books and uh, to keep seeing your great work. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Same, same. Now, take care. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. 
I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands. Growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US, Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, Head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.